Hey, I'm Jan. And I'm Jared. And we're both librarians at Manhattan Public Library. Welcome to the second season of the Read MHK podcast. Read MHK is a community-wide reading program aimed at building connections through books and sharing experiences with each other. Each month, we speak with a local community member, talk about books based on the theme, and offer reading suggestions. Our theme for this episode is Exploring Beliefs. And lucky for us, humans are endlessly fascinating. There are over 8 billion of us hanging out here on Earth, flying around the sun, living our lives, and we're all unique. It keeps things interesting. One of the coolest parts about humanity is that despite our uniqueness and individuality, we have the ability to seek out people with similar interests and beliefs, creating cultures and societies that can persist for hundreds or even thousands of years. This leads to all sorts of neat traditions, holidays, celebrations steeped with history. And it also produces an itch that our curiosity just can't help but scratch. It's nearly impossible to ignore all the other interesting cultures and traditions that other people have. It's like at a restaurant when the sizzling fajitas walk by, you just can't help but turn and say, ooh, I wonder what that is. Our guest today is Reverend Kayla Simmons-Wood. She is originally from Kansas and graduated with a BA in history from Kansas State University before getting her master's in theological studies at Perkins School of Theology at Dallas and a master's in divinity at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. Kayla was ordained in the United Church of Christ in 2010 in Bloomington, Indiana, and became the first female pastor of Manhattan's First Congregational United Church of Christ in 2014, over 165 years after it was first established. Kayla is passionate about understanding and confronting systemic injustices, especially related to race, sexuality and gender, economic inequality, and environmental stewardship. She and her husband David live with their two kids and a menagerie of animals, including, but not limited to, a dog, two guinea pigs, various fish, and backyard chickens. When she's not working, Kayla likes to... Well, take care of all my animals. <laughs> that's, that's probably where you are. No, we kind of have not... them like divided up. I take care of some. David takes care of some. Well, this is going to sound super boring because here we are on a library podcast, but my number one favorite hobby is reading. I've always been a voracious reader, and I kind of like to read everything. I also really enjoy cooking. And baking. I used to just be a cooker, but now I've gotten into baking as well. And I like to try new things. I like to make things up. I'm really bad at following a recipe, though. Mm. Like, I'll start mm. with the recipe, and then I'll change 15 things. And then it's like, that was so good. Will I ever be able to make the chili like that again? Probably not. This year, I've gotten into TV. Like, I was never a big TV person before, but I think during the, like, shutdown phase of the pandemic, I started watching a bunch of TV because I couldn't quite concentrate on books. Mm -hmm. And then I realized there's a lot of really great stories out there, like a lot of really incredible stuff being made. So, yeah. Are you a binger? Yeah, I'm definitely a binger. I have a hard time now if they're not all there. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. The old days where you had to wait till every Thursday <sighs> before the new episode came on. Exactly. Like the White Lotus that just happened was they were releasing them one week at a time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like yeah. a whole entire week? It was torturous. Yep. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I understand. Yep. It's lovely when they dish them all out to us at one time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can also relate to the cooking thing. I am all about recipes and my wife is not yeah. and she will make amazing things and then we'll never have it again because it was just 
random stuff. Mm-hmm, right. It's like, how are you yeah. going to recreate that? I don't know. Yeah. I can't even write it down afterwards. David's like, maybe you should write that down so you could make it again. I'm like, I don't even remember now. And it was 15 <laughs> minutes ago. So <laughs> there's stuff on the counter, but who knows who if knows it actually how much I in. used. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I totally relate to that. Yep, yes. Yep. Makes things interesting. Mm-hmm. And the first book you remember reading as a child is? So I don't really know if this was my first book that I actually read, but my memory is Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss. So I have this like really firm memory in my living room. We had a big green recliner and it was in the corner. So there was like space behind it. And that mm-hmm. was like my little like nook that <gasps> I would sit in. Ooh, I love that. I was really little, probably like, you know, three. And I would sit back there and play and whatever. And I remember sitting back there with green eggs and ham and reading it all by myself and then like jumping out from behind the chair and telling my whole family like I was so proud and so excited that I had read an entire book by myself. That's a great story. That is absolutely fascinating. It made me remember my little hiding place behind a green chair in my house. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Who knew? Mm -hmm. Amazing. Absolutely. Nooks are so nice when you're a kid. Well, they're nice when you're an adult, too, but, yeah, they're, like, extra magical when you're... They're not as easy to get in and out of when you're (laughs) a child. (laughs) So true. I'm like, yeah, why don't I sit on the floor behind chairs anymore? Oh, right. (laughs) I'm never getting up again. (laughs) Amazing. Do you remember who or what got you into reading? I cannot because I just don't ever remember a time before reading. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I think I, I learned to read pretty early and then I just read everything. So there was never a before reading time for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't even really know. I mean, both of my parents are retired public school educators. So clearly I grew up in a house with books and with people who value reading and things like that. So I'm sure that had an impact, clearly. And I know my parents encouraged me to read. But, I mean, I was the kid that would sit at the breakfast table and read the entire cereal box. Just whatever there was to read, I would read it Mm -hmm. all the time. Oh, I remember the good old days of reading the cereal boxes. Yep, I know. Now we have our phones, so we just read the whole internet instead, or at least that's what my kids do (laughs) when they eat breakfast. (laughs) But um, yeah, and I actually, funny story about reading all the time, though, is that when it was time for me to learn how to drive, I really struggled to know how to get anywhere because for my entire life, I literally just like, I would like walk to the car with the book, get in the car with the book, sit there, read the book in the car, and then shut the book, get out of the car. I didn't know how to get anywhere. Like even in my town, when I was, this is so embarrassing, but when I got my license and I was able to drive to school, I had to ask my mom how to get there. And we lived literally three blocks and one turn away from my high school. And my mom just looked at me like, what do you mean you need directions to the school? I was like, I don't know how to get there. And she was just like, what is wrong with you? So these are hazards of reading. you got to be careful. That's a, that's a good story. You don't know how to get I, anywhere. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> are you also good at reading maps? Mm-hmm. Does I love that translate? Maps. Yep, I love maps. So you can but you'll just help. look down and you can give directions to someone. Okay, turn now. Turn oh, yeah. Turn the next. Okay. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also have a map in my head. You know, like I always kind of have a map in my head. I have the problem being local. That I know how to get everywhere, but yeah. if someone asked me for a specific street, oh, no clue. Yeah, like what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. It's like Laramie or Thurston. I'm like, well, I know it's that way. It's by the university. Right. It's in all that. Over there somewhere. Stuff. Yes. Yeah. Turn mm-hmm. and see if it works for you. Yep. <laughs> You'll find it. You'll Just keep going. <laughs> Go to the Pizza Hut. Take a left. Yes. <laughs> what book has left the biggest impact on you? 
coming out strong. Yeah. Yeah, just like pulling no punches. <laughs> I have such a hard time saying like the best or, you know, yeah. right? Right. So I'm, I don't hold me to this forever. But the thing that immediately comes to mind is the autobiography of Malcolm X by Malcolm X and Alex Haley. When I was in, I think, sixth or seventh grade was when the movie version of that came out with Denzel mm-hmm. Washington. Mm-hmm. And my church youth group drove to Kansas City to watch it. And it like blew my mind. I loved that movie so much. I just left like, oh. and then I found out it was based on a book. Then I got the book and I read the book and I reread it many, many times. And there's something about his story that is just, first of all, like up until that point in my life, the only things I had really ever heard about Malcolm X were pretty negative. You know, like he's mm-hmm. this radical militant. He was sort of, in my mind, painted as this opposite of Martin Luther King Jr. figure, right? They were both Mm -hmm. trying to work for the same thing, but Martin Luther King Jr. did it the right way, and Malcolm X did it the wrong way, was the only idea I had in my head about him. And so reading that book, it's essentially like a spiritual conversion kind of narrative, right? Like about his early life and then his time in prison and then him finding faith and then him coming to the person that he later became and all the struggles through that. And I both found that like narrative arc really, really powerful. But also I think it was just like this whole world out there that I had never experienced that I didn't know much about as a white girl growing up in Kansas, you know, and I was just so I was so impressed with him and had so much respect for him and learned so much. And even though his life was so radically different than mine, I was like, wow. And I think the fact that before that he had been painted for me as someone to not look up to Mm -hmm. made me think like, what else is out there? And I think the reason that I keep coming back to it is that because I later went on to do a lot of studying of Martin Luther King Jr. And I think now I see them as they're different, but the same, but they're both very, very complex and incredibly powerful, incredibly important historical figures, both flawed, you know, just different, Mm -hmm. different people. And I feel like we have so much to learn from both of their lives in terms of who we are in the world, what we see our calling to be, how far we're willing to go for that, how we're going to manage all of those challenges. So it was really inspirational. I kind of had a similar thing with Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. In high school, you know, watching the I Have a Dream speech, growing up as a white girl in Abilene, Kansas, I never learned about any of this. Yeah. And so then I did the deep dive into Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's definitely the same. You Mm -hmm. know, you realize how completely different your life is. And yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. This is so interesting to learn about someone else's life that is so completely yeah. different than mine. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas. So by Kansas standards, it's actually very diverse, mm-hmm. you know, and I grew up in a school that was diverse on a whole lot of levels. We learned quite a lot of black history and we always had big Martin Luther King stuff and Black History Month stuff. Like I knew how to sing the Black National Anthem when I was like in middle school and I had a lot of friends who were black, but I think that reading that book helped me understand so much more about what was happening in my own community, too. I started to see more of like the injustices that they experienced and the way that the world still wasn't fixed, because I think that growing up in the period of time that I did in the 80s, like the narrative that was presented to me was kind of like, we used to have these problems and then we fixed them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like about lots of stuff, sexism and race and all of it. And I started looking around in my teenage years and being like, hmm, maybe there's still a little work that needs to be done here. (laughs) I don't think we were giving all the facts. I don't think we fixed it Mm -hmm. all yet. I think maybe this is an ongoing project. So, yeah. That reminds me of, we don't have it on this season of the podcast, but we were asking about the Rudine Sims Bishop quote 
about stories and books being windows and mm. doors and all that. Yeah. And that seems very in that realm of giving you that insight into someone yes. else's perspective on life that you're not getting necessarily in your own life. Right. Or like in my case that I could have been getting in my own life, but it's sort of been blocked for yeah. whatever reason. Right. But then it was like all of a sudden once that window was cracked open, it was like, whoa, now I'm looking at everything around me through mm -hmm. a whole new lens. Okay. So this is a little bit of a controversial question. Okay. Do you dog ear pages or write in your books? Yes. Okay. Both. In your books? Yeah, not in the library. <laughs> yeah, of course. We really brought you in here Ooh. just to... Wait a second. Do you... Is this like an elaborate... Have you been checking my... Yeah. No, I do. I absolutely do. And then I have a really hard time lending books mm -hmm. to people, not because I'm stingy, but because if I've marked it all up and I want to not lose those annotations, and also sometimes those annotations are a little personal, you know? Although I love reading a book that somebody else has annotated. Because I feel like I get a window into that person. Like, <laughs> why did they underline this? Why did they put an exclamation point here? So I don't like the idea of somebody else thinking all of that about me. Dog ear is not as personal. But annotations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. No, I would never write in a library book or dog ear a library <laughs> book. I do have an elaborate, I'm very lazy. So like if I'm reading a book and I don't have a pen or pencil handy, then I'll start dog earing. But I'll do this elaborate, like I'll dog ear the top and then I'll dog ear the bottom and then I'll do like a double dog ear. <laughs> and then really I should just go get a pencil it's like wait oh there's one over there on the table yeah probably should just go get a pencil and is it just for writing in your books is it just nonfiction? Or pretty do you also much nonfiction. yeah although I do have to say sometimes this is more so when I'm reading on an e-reader because I don't have to get a pencil my finger is already like you can always highlight in an e-reader <laughs> I do find myself in some novels underlining highlighting like some really exquisite phrases or quotes that I never go back and look at so I don't really know why I do that but I do I do that with my audiobooks I, I did listen to a lot of audiobooks and yeah. I'll definitely bookmark a lot of them and yeah I mean never, I don't I don't know why gone back to look at but it's like I don't know it mm -hmm. feels like even though the author will like never know you're saying mm -hmm. to the author like thank Good you job. I see I you you really killed it with that line you know describe your ideal reading location or setting Oh, my gosh. Okay, I love this so much. So we've already heard about Behind the Chair. Behind the Chair. This is completely <laughs> different than Behind the Chair. So my ideal reading location would definitely be, number one, alone. No one around and no interruptions. Outdoors, clearly the weather needs to be just right, which for me is probably like 60s and maybe mostly sunny, but a few clouds in the sky. Mm -hmm. So it's not like blaring down on me all the time. And then if we're really getting to the perfect, perfect location, there's going to need to be a hammock. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that would be, I went on a retreat, a spiritual retreat. When was that? This past summer, maybe. And I think we were in silence for two or three days. I think three days. Three day silent retreat. And then we had some talky stuff after that. I did not want the silence to end ever. And there was one afternoon where I spent the entire afternoon. I mean, we're talking like four or five hours in that exact setting that I just described with a whole pile of books. And it may have been four or five of the most delightful hours of my life. That sounds absolutely heavenly. It was so <laughs> great. I'm like very jealous it was, right now. <laughs> it was incredible. It was truly, it felt like the biggest gift. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I don't ever want to forget how great this is. I'm, I'm really intrigued by the silence part too. That would be very interesting. 
I think I would really like that. Especially after I, Christmas. <laughs> I really like silence a lot. Mm-hmm. I get so caught up in other things in life that when I do find the time to read and remember that, oh, yeah, this is something mm-hmm. that is a nice hobby that I should mm-hmm. make time for. As a kid, you have, it seems like, more free time, and you don't really have to make that time. You just have it. Yeah. But as an adult, you have to make a more concerted effort to mm-hmm. carve that out of your day. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting because I had never really thought about that. Hearing you say it like that, Jared, makes me think of reading as essentially, at least in my life, like a spiritual practice. Like, you know, other things like keeping silence or meditation or Mm -hmm. being in nature or prayer or whatever the things are and the ways I've always liked that they're called practices, you know, because Mm -hmm. like you have to you have to set aside, you have to carve out the time, you have to make time to do these things. On a completely different note, one thing I really love about having an e-reader is I always have a book with me now. Oh, always. yes. Because, mm-hmm. like, I usually have at least one book going on an e-reader. And although I prefer to read on my Kindle, I also have the Kindle app on my phone. So if I find myself with five minutes here while I'm waiting to pick up my kid from something or, well, I was going to say if I was five minutes early to a meeting, but I'm never five minutes early to a meeting. <laughs> 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 but it's some sort of alternate reality where I'm ever early to a meeting. You know, like I can steal little bits of time, which is nice. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I used to have a really nice reading practice, like at the end of the day, mm-hmm. right before going to bed. And then like during the pandemic, I don't know. I just couldn't focus. As much. I know my brain just like broke. I mm-hmm. couldn't I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I need to get back. Do you into feel like that. you've gotten it back yet? No, not yeah. yet. That's why I listen to a lot more audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I will I, say the other thing I really struggle with in that regard that I've noticed lately is I'm one of those people that like when I read, I then I do this when I watch TV too. I have to go look up 15,000 things. Yes. I mean, it takes me like four hours to get through a 30 minute TV episode mm-hmm. because I'll need to go read all of Wikipedia. I don't know why. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just really like information. <laughs> but the problem is that I will pick up my phone to go look something up that piqued my interest in the book I'm reading. Then I get some notification. Then I get, and then I'm in this other Wikipedia hole. Then I remember I needed to send this email. Then like 30 minutes later, I come back and I'm still on the same paragraph. (laughs) And I try to then put my phone away so that I don't do that. But then I have these questions Mm -hmm. that I need to go look up. I don't know. It's a never ending struggle. It's a struggle. Struggle, 21st century struggle of living with all of the information in the world (laughs) at your fingertips. There's also the opposite problem of picking up your phone and immediately forgetting why you picked up your phone. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then I you start that, opening stuff. Like, uh-huh. is yeah. th- no? Is this a thing? Is this? I, yeah. I liken that to the when you walk into a room and you don't know why you went there. Yes. I do that, but with my phone or like with my browser on my work computer, I like open up a browser and then I'm like, what was I? <laughs> why did I come into this room? What am I going to do here? Yeah, totally. Oh, yes. We digress. This is this is where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> On the topic of those practices, now we're trying to do bedtime routines yeah. with my son. So most of my reading is during that period. He's just gotten really into books, but he has a very short attention span. He'll hand you one. You get two pages in. He's handing you another book, <laughs> looking for the next one as soon as you start. Right. But at night, he's so out of it that that's when... We're just reading our own books at that point out oh, loud because nice. he doesn't know any different. He doesn't care. It's he just wants to hear your voice. Just as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the practice I have now is that nightly reading because I'm not making time for it in other places unless I'm writing a Mercury article right. or need to do it for work. That's so nice. You could always read the cereal box. I'm just saying. 
as, as I've gotten older, reading of the cereal box is now the side where how much sodium does this have yeah, right, added right, sugars? Right, right. So it's not as exciting. How much corn syrup is in this? It's like, oh my gosh, really? Ugh, go throw this away. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's really lovely though, Jared. I like that. What role do books, stories, libraries play in bringing a community together or even creating a community? This is such a beautiful question. I feel like, I mean, we kind of touched on it, a part of it for me a little bit already when we were talking about the autobiography of Malcolm X, because I think one of the biggest things that stories and books do is open us up to new perspectives mm -hmm. outside of our own. But in a converse but related kind of way, they also connect us to other people that are like us. You know, like I just think mm -hmm. about having those experiences when you read a fiction a book or you hear a story and there's a person that reminds you of you or someone else that you know and you're like, oh, I'm not the only person in the world who does this weird quirky thing or wow, it's not just me that struggles with that. Or even in nonfiction reading, this has happened to me a lot with like theological stuff is I read something and I'm like, that is what I have always believed, but I never had the words for, yes. you know, like, oh, mm -hmm. my gosh, that's it right there. Thank God somebody wrote it down mm -hmm. and communicated it more clearly than I've had rambling around in my brain. So I think that is huge. Just the way that stories draw us outside of ourselves and connect us to other people. And I think that gives us more open hearts. You were saying something in the beginning, Jan, about the ways that humans are endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, if you're a collector of stories and a lover of stories, how can you help but to then have a really open heart and to want to be looking for those in the world around you too? I think you kind of, back to the practice thing, being a lover of stories then sort of gives you a worldview or trains you to be a person who is looking for those stories around you. When I was a little girl, my mom really liked to shop. And when we would go visit my grandmother, she had like a nicer mall in her town than we had in our town. So we would always go to the mall, but my grandma did not like to shop. So my grandma and I did not like to shop. And so my grandma and I would sit on a bench and my grandma taught me the art of people watching. Oh, nice. You know, where you would just like pay attention <laughs> to people as they walk past. And she would ask me little questions about them or even make up little stories or, you know, whatever. And so just that being aware of other humans in the world and paying attention, which back to the technology thing, I mm -hmm. think has become harder to do when we are often in our device and somewhere else rather than being where we are. And I am certainly as guilty of that as the next person, if not worse. And then thinking about like in my own faith community, obviously, that's who we are essentially as Christians, as we are a people who share common stories, which then turn into common rituals, common practices, common traditions. And even though we might all come to them in slightly different ways, like if I say this thing, other people who share the book with me, who share the Bible with me, like they know that, you know, and then mm -hmm. they get the nuances and they hear the echoes of it. And you can do a lot of shorthand type stuff where I say this and you know that I actually mean all of this. They're not going to be able to hear me gesturing on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm gesturing now. Um, you know, but I think that that makes it easier to make connections with other people and makes those connections feel deeper because there's something so beautiful about being able to just say one word and then have another person know that you mean this whole paragraph. Mm -hmm. You feel known and seen then and connected. It's kind of a shortcut to yeah. having to spend a lot of time with each other. You've already yes. spent a lot of time with the same stuff. Yes. So you can jump right in. Yeah. 
But the other thing too, I can't remember what we were talking about at church, but I was in a small group and we were talking about a season of the church year or the Bible or something. And I said, you know, one of the things that's endlessly fascinating to me is the ways in which so many of these stories that are our sacred stories, we come back to them every year and they're different for me. Mm -hmm. You know, like Easter or Christmas or whatever, like this particular text, this particular story. I've had it my whole life and it's very different to me now in my 40s than it was even in my 30s or my 20s or when I was a child. But every time I keep coming back to it, the story is the same thing. But like, I'm not the same and the world isn't mm -hmm. the same. And so there are like layers and layers and layers of meaning. And then the way that that also happens with our rituals, it's the same thing with communion. We have communion in our church once a month and we come to the table and that table means something different probably to everybody in the room. It doesn't mean one thing. It's a multifaceted, multivalent sort of symbol. And so I come to it and this is what it means to me today. But the person next to me is like experiencing something different, even though we're doing the same thing. And I am just really, really grateful for the ways that stories can hold that depth of meaning that makes them welcoming and like expansive so that like we can continue to come back to them over and over again, I think is a really powerful thing and the mark of a really great story. I love your perspective on that, because I think that if everybody thought that way, just realized that, oh, everybody is seeing this in a different light. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't the exact same for everybody else. And I think when you realize that everybody else comes to it with their own perspective, it really opens you up. And that's what allows you to gain empathy for people when you yeah. grasp that, oh, just because I think this way doesn't mean that everybody else does. But hey, how can we discuss this to mm -hmm. share what we think about? Yeah. It? And how important that is to building community, too, mm -hmm. because like in my mind, I mean, I always say, especially when it comes to being a person of faith, can you be a person of faith alone? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. But for me, the experience of trying to understand and live my faith within a community is so much richer because of that. Because mm -hmm. when I go and I do this ritual or I hear this story and it's this thing to me, but then I talk to the five people around me and they're like, oh, but to me, it's this. Oh, but to me, it's this. Then I'm like. Oh, and my mind is mm -hmm. expanded and blown. And it also means that when I come back to that ritual or that story a year from now and I'm a little bit different, I might be like, oh, but I remember when so-and-so told mm -hmm. me, you know, like it, they felt this when they did that. I wonder if that's what I'm experiencing right now. And I feel like that's the part that if I was just me alone as a hermit somewhere, <laughs> as much as I enjoy silence and being in a silent retreat, like I would miss all the growth that comes from that. You know, Absolutely. and I would miss the like, at least in my theology, the understanding I have of God is that God is in all things and is speaking to me through other people around me. And how could I listen if I wasn't listening to other people? That's a great perspective on that as well. I learned so much from my friends. My past five years have changed dramatically because yeah. of the friends that I hang out with. Yeah. And, you know, That's the huge. ideas and the love and the wonder and mm -hmm. everything else that we share is completely different. And, and, and it's just amazing. I love that. I like that idea of acknowledging that there are different perspectives, like we said in the beginning, that everyone is unique. Mm -hmm. So even if you are all Christian or you're all this, you're all that, you're reading the same thing, but you're taking different mm -hmm. things out of it. Yeah. So making that assumption that your perspective is what everyone else has right. really blocks you off from experiencing yeah. so many things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Can you tell us a favorite memory you have related to books or libraries? 
Well, this is one of those questions where I'm like, yes, I could tell you 45. (laughs) (laughs) But you asked for one. So I feel like the one that comes to me, and maybe it's just because we're here at the Manhattan Public Library, but I remember so distinctly the first time I came back into the library after the COVID shutdown. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking up the stairs up to the second floor, you know, like briskly, like to get my book, you know, it's like, I just remember walking up the stairs and tears, like welling up. I have years of memories in this particular place because I went to college here. So I, I came and hit out here and studied here when I was in college and also couldn't get fiction books really at the university mm-hmm. library. I was pretty bummed about that when I discovered there weren't a ton of fiction books. So I came here to get my novel fix. But then also we moved here when our kids were really little. So I spent a lot of time here with our kids when they were younger. But just in general, libraries to me feel like church. They have that same sacred sense. And part of it is the quietness. I think more so it's the sense of community, the sense of like Mm -hmm. when I come in here and I see all these books and it's like, here are all these stories. Here are all these people from across the centuries, from around the world. It's so expansive and I feel so connected and so grateful to be in a place where that's all it's about. Like that's all it's about. And so when I came back in, I mean, to be fair, also during the pandemic shutdown, I was a little raw emotionally. (laughs) I was just crying all the time anyway (laughs) from exhaustion and anxiety and everything else. But I came in here and I was just like, it felt so hopeful to be like, okay, maybe things will eventually someday go back to maybe not what they were before, but some kind of normal, like all of these things that I so deeply miss right now. Like, obviously, I knew they weren't gone forever, but it felt Mm -hmm. like they were. Yeah. You know, and so I was just like, I'm in the library. (laughs) Thank God. This is amazing. Yeah. We've had a lot of people. I'm not the only weirdo. Oh, you are (laughs) most definitely not. You are most definitely not. Because I still have people who come in and they're like, this is my first time back since, you know, and they're like. You know, it's like you can almost see them take a sigh of relief and feel comfortable and be like, oh, this is what I was looking for. You know, just even being here can just be such a relief. I worked elsewhere. I was here for a while and then I worked elsewhere and I came back and I was like, yeah, this is where I wanted to be. It feels so good. Mm -hmm. Well, and I just I don't know. I feel like different places just. The energy in places really affects me a lot and not to sound like so woo woo, but you know, and like libraries just have a good energy, especially if you go down on story time morning in the yeah. children's room, you will see a lot of a energy. A lot of energy. <laughs> yeah, not so quiet then, right? Yeah. Okay. Now we're moving into the theme of this episode. Did you grow up in a religious household? Kind of. So interestingly, both of my parents were not religious. They did not grow up with any type of religious faith. And I say interestingly, because they were both raised in the 50s in Kansas and Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's really interesting that during that time period, neither one of them really had any religious upbringing. And so in my early years, we did not go to church. But I still remember, I mean, it's interesting because I can't describe it as anything else but a sort of like mystical kind of connection. I definitely recall praying And feeling God's presence with me and even having a tangible sense of God being there with me when I was very, very young, like at night, especially when I was falling asleep and I was scared, you know, that kind of thing. I would pray or what I recognize now to be prayer. Oh, mm -hmm. but like nobody had taught me how to pray because we didn't pray. Like I didn't even have a word for that or know what that was. 
But once I got older and kind of had the language for that, I looked back on it and I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. But we started going to church when I started school. My mom said that I came home from school and was like, why don't we go to church like the other kids? (laughs) And then she was like, oh, we better go to church. So she like found a church for us to all go to. And it's actually really lovely because my whole family, my mom, my dad, my sister and I all got baptized together. Um, Because my parents had never been Christian before either. So we all got baptized together. But then after that, we were all like sort of on our own parallel journeys, I think, with faith. So we didn't talk about it necessarily at home. And plus, we went through a lot of family changes, like my parents got divorced. And so it went from being four of us to just being my mom and me because my sister graduated from high school. And my mom and I all through my teenage years were very active in church. But again, we weren't like praying at home or talking about religion at home. We might be talking about church, but those aren't necessarily the same things. So I didn't grow up in a religious household. You know, I hear other people talk about like, oh, I had a grandmother who taught me how to pray, or I had this Mm. aunt who always read the Bible to me, or like, I didn't have any of that. But I think what I did have was other companions on the journey who were also exploring their faith and kind of learning about it at the same time I was, only we were all in different stages of life, so... That must have been interesting with you being at the different stages of life. Yeah. You know, your mom coming from a completely different standpoint than you yeah. as a child mm-hmm. and her yeah. coming to it as a as an adult. Yeah. Like as a kid, I had no awareness of that because as a mm-hmm. kid, I was, you know, self-centered. I'm a kid. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thinking about it now as a mother myself and as a middle-aged person, I'm like, yeah, it was a unique experience that I had. That's really cool. Yeah. When did you decide to become a pastor? Were you like a lot of students when you go off to college for the first time, you really have no idea what you're going to do with that degree or what degree you're going to get? Or did you know I'm going to school to finish this goal? So I often joke that I was very, I don't know, stubborn or whatever, like God had to come knocking many times (laughs) before I was finally like, okay. I mean, the first time I really felt what I would express as a call to pastoral ministry was when I was probably like 15 or 16 at a big regional youth gathering, like church youth gathering. I was United Methodist back then, and we were at a big multi-state gathering. So I felt that really strongly. And when I graduated from high school, in my head, I thought that I was going to become a pastor, but I came to K-State, so I wasn't going to get like a religion degree. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I came in undecided, didn't know what I wanted to study, which was kind of nice, though, because in my head I was like, well, I know that I'm going to go to seminary after this, so I can kind of study whatever I want as an undergrad. So literally what I did was I sat down with the course catalog way back in the days of the <laughs> yes. and it was a hard <laughs> book with my highlighter. Um, It was a copy that I owned. Don't worry. It was not. (laughs) Well, they used to hand them out in the union. Yes, they did. They sure did. I can still see this catalog. I can totally see I went through it with a highlighter and highlighted all the classes that looked interesting to me. And then I went back and I looked at which section had the most and it was history. So then I was Mm. like, cool, I'll major in that. (laughs) (laughs) But then what happened was along the way, I really fell in love with history a lot, a lot. So then I decided I wanted to be a history professor. Through most of college, I thought that's what I was going to do. And I was even in the process of getting ready to apply to master's and PhD programs in history in my senior year. And then all of a sudden, one day, I was like, I can still see it in my head. I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom in our house that we lived in off campus and had all my applications spread out around me. And all of a sudden, I was just like, yeah, I don't want to do this. This is not, not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I didn't. And what came to me was like, you need to go to seminary. 
but I didn't really know if I wanted to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, I don't know if I want to be a pastor. Actually, I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a pastor. <laughs> but I was like, okay, I'm going to go to seminary. So I went to seminary. And after getting there, though, it was pretty clear to me right away that I don't want to be a United Methodist pastor. But in my head, I had only ever been Methodist. I wasn't planning on not being Methodist. So in my head, it was like, either I'm going to be a United Methodist pastor or I'm going to be a United Methodist layperson. The Mm. idea of not Mm -hmm. being United Methodist like did not occur to me. So I switched my degree program to an MTS, Master of Theological Studies, so I could still get a master's degree in something. Like while you're there, might as well, right? Get a master's degree in something. Even though an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, is what you really need to be an ordained clergy person. And then time went on. And my husband and I stopped being United Methodist, and we found this other denomination, the United Church of Christ. And I had been attending and a member at a UCC church for a little while when all of a sudden I was like, hmm, well, I could be a UCC pastor. Like, this feels different to me. Or maybe I'm just different now, you know? Yeah, of course. Because I think part of it, too, was like, I graduated from college when I was 21, and I just kept thinking to myself, like, nobody wants to listen to me talk. I have no lived experiences. I have nothing to say. Like, how could I lead a group of people and take care of them? I just felt really, really young. So even even though later I was still only like 25 or 26, I don't know. There was a lot of growing up, at least, that happened for me between 21 and 25. I oh, felt yeah. a lot more lived at that point. So I guess that was kind of like my third sense of call. Like, okay, maybe I could do this. So then I got my church that I was at made a job for me, which was amazing, which enabled me to quit my full-time job. And I got a scholarship to go back to school to get an MDiv. Yeah. And that was that. Do you, having no knowledge of that education, do they have schools specifically for the different denominations? Denominations? Or is it like this is a different track in the same school? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that it, I mean, it depends a lot on the denomination. So generally speaking, yes, different denominations have their own seminaries that are supported by the denomination. When I went to Perkins, which is at Southern Methodist University and is a United Methodist Seminary, the vast majority, though not all, but most of the students there were Methodist. And I think that, I don't know, maybe I might be speaking out of turn, but I think that like depending on the tradition that you're in, like when I was United Methodist, the expectation was definitely like you'll go to a United Mm -hmm. Methodist Seminary, Mm -hmm. you know. But then when I was in the UCC, For one thing, the UCC is a much smaller denomination, so there aren't as many seminaries around. But I went to Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis is a Disciples of Christ, which is very closely related to the UCC. But there, it was much more ecumenical. I had classmates from, I mean, I still had a lot of United Methodist classmates because it's a big denomination, but there were there were Baptists, there were Pentecostals, there were Episcopalians. I had a friend who was Greek Orthodox. There were even a couple of Catholics. There was was just a really big mix of a lot of different traditions, which was something I really, really appreciated about that and liked a lot more about that. And actually, I think has continued to be something in general that I really like about the UCC is that it is very ecumenical. And a lot of people, like even at my church, didn't grow up UCC. They grew up something else or nothing at all. And so I like being in uh, places that are a little more diverse like that because of that whole learning from from Mm -hmm. other people's experiences. Yeah, because, I mean, you go to school with these people who are from these completely different religions. You're going to learn. Oh, that's really cool about that religion. You know, when I was thinking about you said you were with the Methodist. And Mm -hmm. it's like you need to be able to branch out and Mm -hmm. learn about other divinations. Yes. 
before exactly. you decide that's what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that at least in my experience, my very limited experience, having gone to seminary twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like most of the courses, I mean, it's an academic, it's a graduate program. And so like mm-hmm. most of the courses that you take are not related to your tradition. They're academic. They're related to the study of the Bible, philosophy, theology, history, and then some practical stuff too, like preaching, pastoral counseling, planning worship, all of that kind of stuff. Not nearly enough classes in nonprofit management, I'll tell you. <laughs> or how to pastor during a global pandemic. I missed that course. You could teach it now. Yeah. Woo. Let's hope that this is not an information anybody will need again. You know, but then you would have to, in most traditions, I think to get ordained, you do have to take at least, like I had to take a course in the history and polity of the United Church of Christ. But it was just like a class, you know? And so if it was offered at your seminary, you could take it there. And if it wasn't, you could often take it like through your denomination or whatever. But that wasn't something I needed to graduate from seminary to get my master's degree. That was something I needed to get ordained. Okay. Very interesting. That was like a real long answer. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like it's a long process. It's not just a oh, hey, I think I'm going to do this today. No. As as none of us, you know, I'm in my master's right now. So yeah. The other thing too is that I think a lot of people don't realize just like for trivia fun facts is, so for the most part, I mean, people now get doctors of ministry, like quite a lot of pastors get a doctoral degree, but for many, many years, the master of divinity was your terminal degree. You didn't usually Mm -hmm. get another degree after that. So an MDiv is like 90 credit hours. I mean, it's not, yeah, it's a long program. And that's after your bachelor's. Bachelor's. Yeah. So like you get a bachelor's degree in kind of whatever, Mm -hmm. and then you go get, and part of the reason that it's long like that is because when I started in seminary, I had never had a college class in anything related to religion or the Bible, Mm -hmm. you know? And other people though, who had come from private schools, Christian schools, had degrees, undergraduate degrees in Bible or theology or whatever, but I never did. But yeah, it's a really long, it's a long program. By the time I got all the way done with both of my master's, I was in school for four and a half years. And MDiv is usually like three. Okay. But I did, I did two. So it kind of dragged on. <laughs> we all know. But also, can we pause for a moment just mm-hmm. to laugh at the name Master of Divinity? Like, I we talked about that. That's dope, right? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I've mastered <laughs> We had that discussion. <laughs> We were like, man, I just want that because you're like, right? That's awesome. Yeah, but you don't want to go do 90 credit hours to get it. Do I mean? But seriously, after you've done 90 credit hours, I feel like give me that Master of Divinity. (laughs) Like I, you need that's a long degree program. You need a Doctor of Divinity for that. I know. Oh, there you go. Yeah, Doctor Divinity. It's interesting though because the doctoral degree that pastors get is called a D Men, a Doctor of Ministry. Which is also entertaining because my friends who are in demon programs talk about getting a demon. It sounds like demon. <laughs> I'm getting a demon today. I'm getting a demon. <laughs> which is that's just, how you have to pass is if you can get. Right. Yeah, so it's interesting. You don't get a doctor. Going down the you don't get a doctor of divinity. You only master divinity, and then you get a doctor of ministry. Yeah, that's a fun facts. Time. Fun facts. Something I've never thought of before. You just it's kind of like teachers. You just yeah. think pastors they just live in the church they've always been a pastor yeah you should see the children like from my church when i run into them at the grocery store and they're like you eat food she exists and she's not wearing her robes (laughs) i cannot recognize her (laughs) i bet they love that 
The other thing, though, I do have to say is that this is my experience as a pastor, but like depending on what tradition you're in, it really varies a lot from tradition to tradition. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you could also just go get ordained on the Internet. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Not everybody who has Rev in front of their name. (laughs) <laughs> has done, gone went through to graduate the school right like yeah. it, but it really does depend on the denomination mm-hmm. in some traditions you get ordained by an individual congregation they may or may not have requirements in some you get ordained by the wider denomination they mm. may have very stringent mm-hmm. requirements it really just varies okay and you have to take another test if you want to switch denominations yeah, so again, depends on the denomination, but typically speaking, well, for one thing, in some traditions, you could go serve a church in a different tradition, and not that they wouldn't necessarily care that you weren't ordained in their tradition, but they might not make you switch over. But then in some traditions, they might want you to switch over. So then typically they would have a board or a committee or something that might ask you to do something like take that history and polity class or write us a paper and show that you understand our tradition or explain to us why you're interested in changing traditions before they would kind of give you credentials in that tradition. Because there's a whole separate process. There's the education piece, but then there's a whole separate process of actually getting ordained. A lot more than I thought went into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not like you just wake up one day and you're like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do. There's an open job for a pastor down there at that church. I'll just see if I can do it. I'll just see if the robes fit. Yeah, go on in. Go for it. They might have to be hemmed for me. Okay, so moving on. (laughs) Moving on. What is your favorite cultural or spiritual celebration outside of your own culture or religion? Yeah, that's such a fun question because it's like, well, I mean, I've had a chance to watch other people Mm -hmm. do them, but I don't really often observe other people's traditions, you know, because they're not my traditions. But I feel like one of the traditions that I have a lot of respect for and that I think is really beautiful is Ramadan. Number one, having had the opportunity to talk with some Muslim friends about it, the discipline that's required and just the commitment as an individual to walk that journey is really powerful and really admirable. But also the communal aspect of breaking fast together and being together, it's both the fact that it's like an individual journey that I'm doing for my own relationship with God, but I'm not doing it by myself. I'm doing it with other people. And that resonates a lot with me. That's a lot of how I experience my own faith. And so I just think it's a very beautiful tradition. And again, finding the commonality yeah. between the two religions. And, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. Like a number of years ago now, we had some folks from the Islamic Center here in Manhattan come and speak at our church on a Sunday morning in worship. And when I was sitting down with them to kind of prepare for that, it just so happened that they were coming On the first Sunday of Lent, which in the Christian calendar is the period of time, the 40 days leading up to Easter, which is a time of fasting for some people or a time of preparation, a time of contemplation, all of that kind of thing. And when I was explaining to them, like, okay, you're coming on the first Sunday in Lent, here's kind of what it is. And they were like, oh, this is really similar to Ramadan. So then we had a lot of fun talking about the similarities and differences. Oh, that's between really cool. those two. Mm-hmm. That's cool that you can do so with, with other members of the community who are from a different religion. Yeah. That's really cool. Are there regular opportunities for that type of thing to happen, or do you have to seek it out? Like we have in the library world conferences and all mm-hmm. of that, but do you have, I guess it's not a perfect example because those are insular with maybe different types of libraries, but it's still libraries. It's not a library meeting with retail mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But are those opportunities something that you have to create or do they present themselves naturally? I think there are more things you have to create 
I mean, I think that like anything else, the church world can be very insular and there's so much that needs to be done on any given day (laughs) that it would be very easy to just kind of put your head down and like only tend to your own thing. So I think if you want to have those sort of interfaith connections or dialogues, yeah, I think you have to go seek them out. I think if you live your life in such a way that you're open to that, then it can kind of feel like they present themselves naturally. But yeah, so kind of both. My wife is like that in a way where I've lived here my whole life. She has not. She knows a million more people than I do. (laughs) She knows way more. She knows street names, which I will never know. But she has those, it just seems like, that's just how she lives her life. Throughout her yeah. life. Mm-hmm. Like she's, oh yeah, I ran into this person yeah. and everything ties together mm-hmm. and it almost seems magical. Yep. Well, it's the not even six degrees of Manhattan. It's oh, like well, one too, de- yeah. minus one degree of Manhattan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it important to explore beliefs and cultures that differ from your own? So, and I guess talked we about this. Yeah. We yeah, were yeah. kind of, yeah, we were kind mm-hmm. of, I mean, I think like at the deepest level, it's just, about respect and humility, this sense that I don't have all the answers. And if I want to keep growing as a person, I'm going to need other people to do that, to ask questions that I haven't thought of before and to show me things that I haven't seen before and to make me interrogate my own thought processes. So I think like if you are a person who wants to grow, there's really no way to grow (laughs) without encountering people who are different than you. So there's that piece in terms of like, a self-centered kind of thing. Like, I want to grow, so I need other people to teach me things. But there's also just respect, basic human respect. I know how important my faith is to me, and I would hope that people around me, especially people that I am close with, would care about that and be interested in that and be willing to listen to that, even if it's very different than what they believe. And so extending that to other people is just an important thing that we do as humans. Absolutely. One of the things that makes it really challenging and where I had to do a lot of learning and growth as a Christian is Christianity, unfortunately, is a religion that in its more orthodox or traditional sense is very close minded in terms of there really is a sense. I never like to I just I can't speak about all of Christianity because there's I always say like, well, Christianity is a big place. You know, like since the dawn of the religion, just like in any religion, it's never been one thing, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think the more common or dominant or orthodox strains of Christianity have been very supersessionist. I mean, that's where we see a lot of like anti-Semitism, a lot of anti-Judaism. There's a lot of our stories better than your story. Mm -hmm. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. So that's where you get all of this stuff. We see that a lot in dialogue, like in our wider country right now and in our culture, not just ours, but the whole world where people will say, why do these Christians, they're not like satisfied to just live their own life and have their own freedom of religion. They also want to tell me how to live my life. Mm -hmm. It's like, but if you have an understanding of your religion as being dominant and being the only right way, then you're going to think you're doing other people a favor, you know, in a crusade kind of way to like convert and to live like you, which is not at all the understanding of Christianity that I have. But I think that what I grew up with was that dominant narrative. And I Mm -hmm. had to do a lot of unlearning and a lot of unpacking because as a teenager, I remember being really confused and concerned because I thought that Jesus was the only way. And so then I would be like, but what about my friend Mm so-and-so? But what about this person? You know, and it felt off to me. And then I had to like see that there were other options and other ways of staying Christian that still allowed me to have a respect for other faiths and for people who have no faith at all and 
all of that to get to the point where I could be like, yeah, I really want to learn from other people, even if they're really different than me. And I don't need to convince them to be like me. I think if a lot more people thought that way, there would be more people coming together and realizing that saying, okay, just because that's not what I believe doesn't mean that you have to believe the same thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I was struggled with that as well. Growing yeah, up Catholic, hard. I didn't understand why. I remember asking my mom because she grew up on Long Island and knew a lot of Jewish friends. And I was like, well, why has there always been such a beef between Catholics and Jewish people? I don't understand. And so she would tell me what she knew about it. But yeah. it was just like, wow, so great to be out of it now. Look around. <laughs> Can't wait till you hear that one on the edit. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? <laughs> What impact does society have on your beliefs? And do the news headlines and your interactions with people make you question your beliefs or do they reaffirm them? Well, I think I alluded to this earlier, but in general, I don't really have an understanding of God that is separate from the world. So in my mind, God, this like spirit of energy, force of love that somehow exists in all things and beyond all things. And can be glimpsed, you know, but also never fully seen. I'm going to get all mystical on you now. Sorry. (laughs) Yes. We call that sneak a preach. I have a friend. (laughs) Shout out to my good friend, Lori Walkie, who taught me that. And she's like, oh, sneak a preach. (laughs) Always a danger when you have a preacher talking to you. But what that means is like, then, yeah, of course, they're all interrelated. Like, I can't. I believe that God is speaking to me, not just through these ancient stories in the Bible, or through my own sort of like having my heart warmed. Oh, look, I'm still Methodist. That's like a Methodist saying, having your heart strangely warmed or, you know, in a still small voice or whatever, but also through the events that are happening in the world and through people that I encounter and all of that. So, I mean, sometimes I think it makes my faith stronger. Sometimes it makes me question things. Can't really separate them. And I think that's part of religion and growing is knowing that, okay, just because these bad things happen all over the world, you know, Mm -hmm. You're like, why would God do this to tiny yeah. children? And it's like, okay, let's back up a little bit. It's not all about us. Right. You know, it's it's a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It takes more learning. Yeah. One of the things I really love, speaking of books, hey, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Richard Rohr, who's Catholic and also from Kansas. Fun really? fact. Mm-hmm. Grew up in Topeka. He's a real famous Catholic priest. He runs a Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico. And he's written a lot of great books, but he wrote one, I don't know, must be three or four years old now called The Universal Christ. And one of the images that he has in that is he talks about the first incarnation of Christ. And by Christ, he doesn't just mean Jesus. He means like this mystical Christ force beyond, you know, that that is what some of us would call God. The first incarnation of Christ, he said, was creation, Mm -hmm. like the world. And the second incarnation, incarnation meaning like God coming to be a part of humanity, was in Jesus the person. So traditionally in Christianity, we talk about the incarnation being Jesus, Mm -hmm. like Jesus' birth and the divine dwelling within this specific person. And I really love Father Rohr's idea of the first incarnation being all of creation. And then, mm-hmm. and then it was sort of God was like, okay, y'all didn't get it the first time, so let me come back with round two. Maybe you'll get it this time. Here's a different take on the same thing. But I love that because it, like, I struggled for a long time. Oh, my gosh, now I'm just wandering. I apologize. 
I struggled. <laughs> I just bing, bing, bing. I struggled for a long time with I grew up like in a Trinitarian understanding where it was like Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was about the particularity of only Jesus is God. And then I got to a point like in my 20s where I was like, that's not really doing much for me anymore. I don't really like that. But then I came back around to a different understanding of Trinitarian theology where it's like the incarnation, the, the spirit of God that's present in the person of Jesus is there to remind us of the ways in which the spirit of God is present in everything. So it's not an exclusive thing. Mm-hmm. It's not God is only present in Jesus. It's this story reminds us of the way that Christ is present in all things. And Father Roar talks about living in a Christ-soaked world, like that everything is infused with Christ. And I really like that. Okay. Well, and even that kind of thinking can be used for like indigenous thinking. Absolutely. Where God is in the trees Mm -hmm. and, you know, you hear your own version of God Mm -hmm. and the wind blowing and and things. And coming back to community, I think this is why community becomes so important Mm -hmm. because in the United Methodist tradition that I was raised in, they talk about something they call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Oh. John Wesley was the founder of United Methodism. Fun fact, he didn't actually invent this quadrilateral, but that's a whole other story. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral and it is scripture and tradition and reason and experience. All four of those things Mm -hmm. come together to kind of help us with our faith. And one of the things that I like about that is that it's not just scripture, right? But it's also not just my own experience of God. Mm -hmm. It's not also like what I can think about, but it's also like what we have, what we experience as a community. And so I think that's where it becomes really important, especially if you have an understanding of God, that God is speaking to you through nature or speaking to you through this person. I think there can be a danger there of going like, whoa, way off, like into things that you thought you heard that maybe are, are not what you heard. And so that's where, then, <laughs> or maybe that's just me. But I think that's where we need community. We need community to be a place where we can say, well, I think this is how I'm understanding it. And we need other people that we can trust to say like, dude, me too. Or mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? That is not how this works. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I think that's where community becomes really important. And sometimes that community Mm -hmm. is other people, like in a faith community, like in a church. But sometimes it's also community that you find in books. It's theologians. It's other people that you're reading. It's conversation partners that you have. And I think that's really helpful, too. Absolutely. Can you call it a conversation partner? Like, can Richard Rohr be my conversation partner, even though I've never met him? I like that. I'm going to say yes. Conversation partner. I hope he doesn't mind. Mm -hmm. Father Rohr, if you're listening to this. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, ta- we'll tag him in it <laughs> shout out from kansas we've touched on it a little bit but it's kind of that same way of finding an author or like i found it a lot in comedians because they tend to be very open about yeah. who they are and they are jokes but it's their personality within it yeah yeah finding those comedians authors whoever who are expressing those inner thoughts that you've had Mm-hmm. That make you feel like even though you might not be in their community, totally, you aren't alone. Yes. And those weird, random tangents that you've had, like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's real. Yep. Totally. I think that's why podcasts are so, yes. so popular right now. I agree. Because that makes me think of Brene Brown. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, me and my friends are like, oh, did you hear this yes. one? Did you, did you, you know, we do that kind of stuff all the Absolutely. time. And it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, definitely yep. sharing our beliefs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you have to be more, I think as you grow older, when you're kids, it's just 
that person is right in front of me, so I'm going to be friends with that right. person. Right, like they're, mm-hmm. you're just sitting next to you at school. Yeah, yeah. Right. but mm-hmm. then as you get older, you're finding those common ground things. Yeah. Like this person has the same sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Like my two best friends were very different where we're at in life, but we all have that same sense of humor. Yeah. And the common experience of growing up together yeah. helps a lot. But finding that one trait in someone, yes. it doesn't matter like all the other things, like you have that commonality. Yeah, totally. Okay, and we've also gone over this a little bit, but how have your beliefs changed over time? You've switched denominations. You've gone from not a religious house to a religious house mm-hmm. when you were younger. How have my beliefs not changed over time? I mean, like, <laughs> I think, wow. you know, all of us, you know, yeah. as you grow older, your beliefs change. Absolutely. You know, you. Yeah. I think yeah. probably the biggest thing for me and the thing that is sort of the key that unlocks all the other things that is foundational is my understanding of scripture and what it is. Because I think I was raised with an understanding that the Bible was the inerrant word of God, mm-hmm. that God sent these words down from heaven like in a lightning bolt and that everything that is written in there is truth cannot be changed cannot be questioned i should also say like i don't mean to make it sound like my upbringing was i don't think my my guess is the adults around me probably weren't necessarily thinking of it like that but that's how i interpreted it as mm-hmm. a child mm-hmm. and as a teenager because i also think part of it is you have a lot more like black and white thinking just developmentally right part of this is a developmental process too absolutely which is why we're all changing But when I started to question those things and I started to think like, okay, well, I mean, if this is all 100% true, then why are there like multiple versions of Jesus's birth? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What am Mm -hmm. I supposed to do with that? Or like, whoa, this thing doesn't make any sense at all to me. You know, so then I had to find, in order to stay Christian, which I wanted to do, I had to find some different way of understanding scripture. And so I think that's the most foundational thing is when I came, when I came to a point where I could understand the Bible as a really important text. It's a bunch of books that were written down by people. It's their best attempt to communicate about how they experience God. But like I said earlier, I don't think we humans can ever fully know or see or understand God. And so it's going to be flawed. And those flaws make it even more precious because those are the things that we can talk about then. That's why we can keep coming back to these stories that are some of them thousands of years old is because There's a lot to unpack there, you know, and so then the sacredness, the it becoming scripture part is not just the stories. It's the fact that then they were canonized as scripture, like people looked at them Mm -hmm. many, many centuries ago and said, these are the important ones that we want to keep. And then that people over time have continued to gather around them. They're like the fire that we gather around. And then we and then we keep telling more stories and new stories and asking new questions and You know, so they're very, very rich. And I think scripture contains the word of God, but is not the words of God. You know, so we have a thing in our in our tradition. We often say, like, we take scripture seriously, but not literally like it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a gift and it is a, a beautiful thing and a tool for experiencing God. But it's not God itself. Once I made that shift then a lot of other things changed. And that's also a place where I feel like sometimes when I have a disagreement with another person, this happens a lot around like LGBT folks because Mm -hmm. I'm the pastor of a church where not only, I mean, we don't tolerate LGBT people. There's something to be tolerated. Like, yeah, it's totally fine. And people who disagree with that or don't understand that, they will want to talk to me about it and sometimes debate about it. And I'm just like, 
but tell me what you think about the Bible first. Because mm-hmm. if what you think about the Bible is this and what I think about the Bible is this, then there ain't no amount of talking that is ever going to get us on the same yeah, page. Yeah, because you're just going to be mm-hmm. talking like this and I'm going to be talking, I'm gesturing now with one hand <laughs> going, but like we're just going to, we're never going to connect because your understanding is based on what you think the, the Bible is and it's this thing. My understanding is based on what I think the Bible is and it's a completely other thing. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't, there's not really common ground for us to find as much as I hate to say that because I always like to find common ground Mm -hmm. but I also think there's something to be said for the respect that comes with knowing like you're not going to change my mind and I'm not going to change your mind we Mm -hmm. are on completely different pages here and that's just it is what it is so let's be respectful to one another not waste each other's time Mm -hmm. trying to prove something to each other that is never going to it's not going to it's not going to happen yeah Yeah. this kind of goes into our, our next question your church has an open and affirming statement making it clear that everyone is welcome, regardless of things like race, culture, gender, sexual orientation, and physical or mental ability. You also fight for civil rights and inclusiveness outside of the church. This is a different view of religion that is often portrayed in the media. Can you talk about how this outlook has helped you create a community and engage with people who might not have the same beliefs or values? So this is definitely... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were like, we were going right yep, into it. We were going we? right there. Yeah. I mean, I do think a lot of it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about just respect and this desire to learn from other people and grow from other people. And if you're starting with a baseline of God is present in everything and Mm -hmm. and a main goal for me as a human is to continue to grow and change and learn, then you're going to want to be around people who are a little different than you. Otherwise, you're going to get stagnant. So there's that piece. But I think the other thing and this, I think, is like really apparent to me because. I grew up in a different tradition, but in the United Church of Christ, our denomination, we talk a lot about covenant, covenant being basically an agreement that we enter into when we become a part of the United Church of Christ, that we're going to be together for however long it makes sense, because we want to be. So our sense of being a part of the United Church of Christ is a continual choice that we're together because we want to be together. We're not Mm -hmm. together because we're all the same. We're certainly not together because we all believe the same thing or all look the same or do the same thing or whatever. The thing that holds us together is the fact that we desire to journey alongside one another on wherever stage in the journey we're in with faith. And learn from each other and And grow with each other. Exactly. Yeah. It reminds me of like that's something I really, really love about a yoga practice and about practicing yoga with other people is it's like I'm here mostly because it's what I'm doing on this mat in my little space here. But I can't do what I'm doing here in my space on this mat without the other people around me on their mats, too. Mm -hmm. Like, we're all doing different things, but we're doing it with a common. So, but like a story about the United Church of Christ that I think really illustrates that is, don't worry, I'm not going to give you the entire history (laughs) of the United (laughs) Church of Christ. But we have really, really old roots and came from like four different traditions, basically, whereas like two of them merged up and then eventually it all merged together in the 1950s to form the United Church of Christ. So that's why our church, incidentally, is called First Congregational United Church of Christ, because we used to be congregational. Like, that's the stream that we're from. We were congregationalists. And then that's one of the streams that merged into the United Church of Christ. And when they merged in the 1950s, there's this really famous picture of these two guys who were the head of those two denominations shaking hands, entering into covenant to form this new denomination. And the behind the scenes is like nothing was worked out. They merged and became a new denomination. They didn't have a statement of faith. They didn't have a constitution or bylaws. They just were like, let's do it. Sweet. 
we'll work I out. I like you. You like me. Let's go. We'll work out the details later. Um, you know, but they did. So I always think that that's really indicative of the wider spirit of our denomination is it's like, let's be together because we want to be together and let's see where that goes mm-hmm. and we'll work out the details and it's okay. But I feel like if I was going to start a denomination, I would probably like ask the other people, how are we going to do this? What do we believe? How, what are the rules? You know, before. I said, let's do it. <laughs> but I love that, like, they didn't. Like, I think that's really cool that they didn't. They hired the photographer and couldn't cancel. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. That back. must have been it. That must have been it. But I think that this has pluses and minuses, though, because it's not for everybody, I guess, is what I'm saying, right? goes with every religion. Sure, absolutely. You know, yeah. People need different things. But, like, you know, when people are new to our church, they will at some point in time often want to get together with me and have some questions mm-hmm. about our uh, our tradition or about our congregation. And a lot of people will ask, like, well, what do you all believe about X? Mm. And I'm like, well, I hate to tell you that you could go ask 50 people here and get 60 different answers because mm-hmm. we don't all believe the exact same thing. I can tell you that I hear a lot of people around here say this. You know, so like when people ask me, like, what do y'all think about the Trinity? It's like, well, I could tell you that this is what I hear people say about that. But we don't all believe the same thing. Why we're together is because we're all on a journey and we want to be on the journey together. So, yeah. I think that's fantastic. I think that is a great way to look at religion and to look at how we grow together. It works for me. Mm -hmm. I like Mm it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I might be biased. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Since it's what I'm doing with my life. But yeah. But again, it's not for everybody. And I do understand and respect that some people really need things to be much more precise. And I really do think that as humans, some of it is learned, but I think some of it is also hardwired. Like what type of thinker we are, how comfortable we are with ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And I trust on a religious, spiritual level that God, what I call God, that force of love, is at work in all of that. And can work with people who have much different ways of thinking and understanding and need different things from a religious community than I do. And that doesn't mean that my way is better than theirs or vice versa. Mm -hmm. I believe that God is big enough to work through all of that. It's come up a couple times recently, but it reminds me a little bit of the differences between cross-stitch and embroidery. Say more. (laughs) Cross-stitch, like I like cross-stitch because there is that structure like this string has to go in one of these holes. Yeah. Broadly speaking, you could go off the the deep end with that. But Mm -hmm. then embroidery, you're just, it's really a blank canvas. And it's kind of up to you to make the decision where you're going to put that thread. And other religions, it seems like, or denominations, it seems like there is more of that cross-stitch structure Mm -hmm. where this is where this goes. Mm -hmm. Whereas with your denomination, it seems much more open to let's try it here and Mm -hmm. see what that looks like. Yeah. That's a beautiful analogy. That Thank is a you. very good analogy. I'm going to put it on a bumper sticker. Good job, Jared. I love it. <laughs> I actually didn't know that about cross stitch and embroidery, so thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to refrain from going to read 14 Wikipedia articles. <laughs> I know, you're itching to grab your phone know, right now. Why can't I go do a What's deep the dive? Difference between? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I like cross stitch. It's more because you it's can definitely do s- pixel art with yes. it. Oh, yes. Because you, you just have little squares. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But. I like the idea of embroidery, but it makes me anxious knowing Mm -hmm. that maybe this isn't the right place, but there's no right place. Like, you're just making it up. So sometimes people will look at a church like ours or our wider tradition, the United Church of Christ, and say it's an anything goes. Like, y'all don't really believe anything. 
because you're just tolerant of everything. But that's not really true. Where my head just went when you're talking about embroidery is that sometimes when their structure, at least for me, I got to have some structure and some sense of expectation and some sense of boundaries. And boundaries help create freedom if they're the right kind of boundaries Mm -hmm. because they help spur creativity and give me a more manageable thing to work within. Whereas it's just like anything goes like that's just overwhelming. Yeah. And so I always tell people, I'm like, well, no, I mean, we have values, <laughs> like <laughs> respect, you know, and we have these things that are core to us and that we're not willing to waver on, mm-hmm. but they're just maybe not, not the same kind of setbacks that other people have. Yeah. You know, or not setbacks isn't the word, the maybe kind of hindrances or. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure. I'll have to yeah. ponder that more, mm-hmm. but. You yeah. have the safety gates up, so you have to stay within the room but you don't have like a maze set up that you have to follow yes you're so good with these analogies that's a very special skill (laughs) set and jared has it that's awesome if you were a preacher that would be really i might (laughs) like call you the next time i need help finding an analogy i'll work on it jared what's an analogy for this and then he'll spend five days on it you could go write my sermons Being a pastor, you've obviously got the Bible to work with, but what other books have you found enlightening both personally and professionally? So I want to begin by saying that I could talk about this for like... This could be the whole podcast. At least a series. A series. I mean, I could go for days. (laughs) Although it's also kind of challenging because (laughs) this is kind of embarrassing. It's just the way my brain works, though. I, I read a lot. But then I read things and then I like mostly forget what I read. Mm-hmm. So what happens is after I read it, it's just in my head, it gets filed as like, oh, I really loved that or I didn't love it that much or I didn't mm-hmm. like it at all. And that's pretty much all I remember. But I'm very enthusiastic about the ones that I love. So I'm that annoying person who like recommends books to friends. And I'm like, you have to read such and such. It's so good. And they're like, what was it about? And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> don't know. I don't remember. But just trust me when I tell you that it was amazing. That is exactly how I am. Really? I am totally like that, too. Well, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. But personally and professionally enlightening. So I'm going to break it down for each sort of period of my life. So when I was a child, I would say one thing that was really, really one of my favorite books that really blew my mind was the whole Madeline Lingle, Mm -hmm. the whole time quintet, all of it. You know, a lot of people have only read A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. But I really, really liked the other ones too. Mm-hmm. And the, my favorite one kind of changes over the years. But A Swiftly Tilting Planet might be my favorite. It was just such a powerful awakening to the fact that there's more beyond what we see mm-hmm. on the surface. There are all these other things that exist out there that we haven't thought about and that are kind of happening underneath that I really loved. And it's definitely all of those books are ones that I have reread them countless times, can go Mm -hmm. back to them and find something different all the time. When I got into like, so 20s and 30-ish, 20 to 30-ish, I was in school that whole entire time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my multiple tours of graduate school. (laughs) So that was a lot of heavy lifting in terms of thoughts and things that blew my mind. And I would say some of the most impactful stuff for me then was we've already talked about Martin Luther King Jr., Mm -hmm. but I took multiple courses on him and did an independent study project the second time I was in seminary. So I had the opportunity to read lots and lots and lots of both his stuff, but then Mm -hmm. other stuff about him. And that was really powerful because I think that for the most part, what you get is I have a dream Mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. (laughs) But then when I actually started reading the other stuff that he wrote and said, I was like, oh, no wonder he got killed. Like, 
this is really radical out there stuff. And also the fact that I, growing up, I mean, I might have known on some level that he was a pastor, but like not really. Mm. I mean, I don't think I really paid attention to that. But I mean, he was a very accomplished, brilliant theologian. His theology is the backbone for then everything that he did Mm -hmm. in the world. His understanding of God and his understanding of his role to play then is why he did what he did. So that was really powerful for me. Another one is James Cone, who's another theologian and wrote several books that I think the first one I read was Black Theology of Liberation. So that was one of those aha moments where it was like, Oh, these are ideas that I have had rolling around in my head for a really long time. And now I see somebody express them. And that was really, really powerful. But it's this whole understanding of Christ and of God and Christianity as being not just tangentially about freedom and liberation, but unable to exist apart from that, like that that is what is about. And if that's not what you're about, then it's not really Christianity. So that was really powerful. Another one on a theology level there for me was a book. I don't even know if this is in print anymore. And it's a very small little book called The Children Are Free by Jeff Miner. And I want to say Tyler Connolly. I should have looked that up, but I think that's right. That was the book that I read that helped me on my journey. I was a person who at that point was very clear, but I didn't have the biblical framework yet to like support that at all. And The Children Are Free is all about what the Bible says about mostly about homosexuality. I don't think it gets a lot into gender identity, but goes through and gives good historical information about the different places in the Bible that get used. The authors call them clobber passages. Mm-hmm. Like what are the passages that people typically use to say that it's wrong to be gay? Okay. Here's another way of looking at them. That was really, really important to me because I was like, okay, if this is where I am with my faith, I need to understand what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. Moving into like 30 to 40 type period of time in my life, I love, have either of you read The Book of Delights by Ross Gay? No. I've not. Oh my gosh, it's so good. You should read it. I don't remember what it's about, but it's, <laughs> no, just It's beautiful. Okay, so Ross Gay is a poet, but this book is mostly essays. So he went through, I think, a whole entire year of his life and made it a practice to write about one thing that delighted him each day. Oh, that's great. It's that's a great so idea. Good. So they're not there. He, he, then he narrowed it down. And it's not 365. Yeah. Of them. It's a very short little book. But I have I given a really away. good egg today. And yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. But he, <laughs> I mean, number one, he's just like a beautiful, incredible writer and funny and, you know, everything else. But I don't know that book. Just I've given copies of that book away to so many people because I think it's just such a good reminder that all of this beauty exists in the world mm-hmm. wherever you go. And if you choose to open your eyes and your mind to see it and to look at it through that lens, you'll find it. And that's really important. And then for my 40s, don't worry, I'm in my 40s. So this is the last one. (laughs) Okay, this is not like the world's most impactful book, but this is just my book that I've read probably in the past year or two that I can't let go of. Mm -hmm. You know, like I just keep thinking about it. This novel that I found here at the library when I was just randomly perusing, I like to come in and just like Okay, but I'm, but I'm discerning about it. I pick them up off the new releases shelf, and then I look on Goodreads because uh, yeah. I have a pretty strong thing. I won't read anything that has less than four stars on Goodreads unless, unless yeah. someone I know that I trust has already told me this is a great book. If mm-hmm. it has less than four stars, I'm probably not going to mess with it. Anyway, the book is To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara. It is inexplicable. It's pretty weird. There's three different books in one. They take place roughly 100 years apart. They're Mm -hmm. sort of in like a, 
what's it called when, oh, like an alternate history? Is mm-hmm. that what it is? So the older one is in the United States, but it's like in a slightly different version of the United States. Like the Civil War okay. went differently. Is that the right thing? Alternate yeah. history. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then and then there's a more like contemporary one, and then there's one that takes place in the future. So the really weird thing, though, is that I'm not going to give anything away. Don't worry. Spoilers. But she uses <laughs> the same name. The characters are different in all three books, but themes recur. And also she uses the same names for people, but they're not the same people. Okay. So if it was a movie, they'd be played by the same actors. Yeah, probably. Just probably. Yeah. yeah. So I can't even really tell you what I love about that book so much other than I'm just like, what I love about this is that you're so good. Yes. Like, <laughs> you killed it. Like, this is Good a job. really <laughs> weird, incredible three books in one, and I'm really glad that I read it just because I'm so amazed that somebody's brain created this because mm-hmm. I could never do that, and that's so cool. I've read a few books like that. Yeah. It's just like, wow. How did your brain come up with I this? I know. Because mine, mine would never. Like, isn't it all amazing? All over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed I'm really into these books that are like multiple books in one. Mm -hmm. I just finished reading Trust by Hernan Diaz. And it's another, it's four books in one. I don't know. I like it. But also I read Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was like one story in there that I didn't like. That's a really long book. And there was one story. It's like five different stories, I think. And they alternate each chapter and they all get kind of tied together at the end. There was one storyline that I didn't like. And after I got like 400 pages into the book, I was just like, I'm not reading that one anymore. Yeah. Like, and whenever that chapter started with that one storyline, I was just like, next. (laughs) And it's the one that ties it all together. Yeah, no, it was okay. I still understood. Well, I mean, as much as you can understand that book, I understood it at the end. It was cool. But I was just like, listen, life is too short for me to keep reading this one storyline I don't like. I'm the same way. All right. So final question, and it's an important one. What is your favorite pop song or artist at the moment? And we asked this because it was cut out of your bio, but you do mention that you enjoy I'm a connoisseur of all things related to pop music. It's important to clarify so that your listeners aren't just like, why are they asking (laughs) this question? Okay. Well, not to be like completely trite, but I really deeply love Taylor Swift. I really did not like her for a long time, mostly because I didn't want to like her. So I was trying really hard not to pay attention. But then somewhere along the way, really, it was about when her album 1989 came out, I fell hard. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this woman is very talented. And so I've loved pretty much everything she's done since then. And she just had an album come out not that long ago, Midnight's, which I have been listening to on repeat. And I really, really like it. But I think Two of the things that I really, really respect about her are one, and this is appropriate for a library podcast, (laughs) is, I mean, she's a songwriter in addition to being a singer, obviously, Mm -hmm. and she not only does the music and chooses some amazing other writers to work with and producers, but also like her, her skill with lyrics is just incredible. She's an amazing storyteller. She's also like in recent years done some experimenting with taking on other personas So she's not even just, it's not just autobiographical, but she's, Mm -hmm. you know, taking on other personas in her writing. But I mean, the way that she melds the lyrics with the music in particular, she's just very, very skilled with that. And she reminds me a lot of Paul Simon and also Carly Simon, not related. It's funny, they're (laughs) both Simons. And the way that they did lyrics, which I just have a lot of respect for because I like words a lot. So the other thing I really, really respect and admire about her is that 
her vocal skills have improved massively over the years. When she first started as a teenager, her songwriting skills were great, but I didn't think that vocally she was great at all. And I feel like she's such a strong songwriter. She could have just stayed like that and probably Mm, still would have been mm -hmm. really, really famous. But you can tell that over the years she has worked really hard to improve her vocal range and her skills to become an even better artist. And I think that's really cool that she has that level of commitment to excellence because she could have just been like, I'm really good at this other thing, so I'll just ride this out. But instead, she wanted to get good at all of it. You have to respect anybody who does that, who isn't just like, I'm just going to cash it in from here on out. No, yeah. But I'm going to actually keep working. I think that Taylor Swift is probably, I don't know, I'd have to go, maybe I'll go look this up on Wikipedia articles after we're done. (laughs) I feel like she must be like a really hardcore Enneagram 3 because I think that her, like, her drive is just, it's it's immense. It's definitely, it's not something I have. I would not have that. Absolutely not. I'm just like, let me just get into my pajamas, please. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But thank you for asking me a question about my, my love of pop music. I could go on for a very long time and I won't. I guess I shouldn't say my. And it's, do. it's it's so funny because like right now, my favorite song right now is Unholy. Oh, I Sam love Smith. that song. Oh, no, it's great. And Kim Petras, and she's amazing yes. as well. Yeah, no, I love it. Totally good. I was like, that's just happens to be. I love it. It's so funny be. because I feel like the like chatter out there about that is like people were really surprised because they think it's like a real departure for Sam Smith. But I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It seems pretty in line for me. It's great. Yep. I love, I love it. it. I think I've only heard covers of that song. I don't think I've yeah. actually heard the song. You should song. listen to the original because yeah. it's good. It's good. Someday. I like it. Mm-hmm. I do too. Do you want me to go on about, for a while about Post Malone? or? <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I really like Post Malone too. And Lil Nas X, but I digress. <sighs> I love Lil Nas X. If you decide to do another podcast about, about pop music in the future, okay, invite me to come back. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here. This has been great. Absolutely wonderful. Thanks Thank you so much. This has been enlightening (laughs) (laughs) to say that yes yes (laughs) we did it if you'd like to learn more about read mhk or sign up for the program you can go to our website mhklibrary.org there you can find book suggestions based on each month's themes log the books you're reading for the month and find information on upcoming programs and if you'd like to contact us send us an email at refstaff at mhklibrary.org thanks for listening